0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. A man named Saul of Tarsus is transformed into Paul the Apostle through an encounter with the risen Christ. We read about it in Acts chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles this morning with you, you can open them to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the first 19 verses. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to locate a paperback Bible nearby, underneath one of the seats in front of you, so please take one of those Bibles. Our text is on page 535 in those Bibles, 535. But if you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 9, please stand now if you're able for the reading of God's Word. These words are written by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote Acts by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to read these inspired words again, beginning in verse 1 of Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight." Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Well, this morning, as we think about a heart transformed and how that happens, let's consider first Paul and his character on the road. That's really what we're reading about in the first two verses of Acts chapter 9, Paul and his character on the road. Now, for starters, he's referred to as Saul in verse 1, which is a Hebrew or Semitic name, and then beginning in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, he's referred to as Paul, which is likely a Roman or Latin equivalent of that name. We learn in verse 11 that he is a Jew and he's from Tarsus, which was a major trade city in the um, Roman Empire. You can see Tarsus up here. It's about 500 miles north of Jerusalem, which is all the way down here along the Mediterranean Sea. It belonged to the Roman province of Syria, which also was the location of Antioch, an important city in the book of Acts in the early church, but also was the place where Damascus was. Was located. So here's Tarsus, Damascus, and Jerusalem. Now we don't know a whole lot about Paul's childhood or his upbringing, but we do know by his own account in Acts chapter 22, verse 3 later, that he was brought up in Jerusalem and was trained in the Jewish law by a teacher named Gamaliel. Now Gamaliel was a very um, distinguished and revered instructor in the Torah. And so to be instructed under Gamaliel in the Jewish law would be probably comparable to a physicist being trained by Einstein. It was quite a distinction and an honor. But we're actually first introduced to Saul in the scriptures in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, at the stoning of Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. And Luke tells us at that time, when Stephen was executed, that witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Luke goes on to tell us in the first verse of chapter 8 that Saul approved of Stephen's execution, and then in verse 3 of chapter 8 that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is all happening in Jerusalem, and so as Christians fled that persecution went to places like Damascus, Paul was intent on hunting them down in Damascus as well, which is exactly where we begin in Acts chapter 9, these first two verses. Let me go ahead and read them to you again. Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, it's a reference to anyone being a Christian, men or women, he might bring them bound back to Jerusalem. But why is Paul doing this? What is fueling his persecution? Well, we actually can get some clues by his own testimony as he explains to the church in Galatia in Galatians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. This gives us some insight. He writes to them, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. That goes a long way to explain what is fueling his persecution. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Saul is fully committed to the traditions of Judaism, and his identity is grounded in his ethnicity as a Jew. And as such, anything that threatens those traditions, he regards as worthy of opposition, even those who propagate the weakening of those traditions he regards them as enemies of God himself and so when we think about it what can we say about Paul and his character on the road to Damascus well he's kind of a domestic terrorist who's full of hatred and violence he's not a white supremacist because he's a Jew but he is a Jewish supremacist And he's seeking to eliminate anything that would threaten the purity of the nation. He's a Jewish nationalist and and kind of a fascist who is bent on silencing any opposition. That's Saul of Tarsus. So when you think about it, Saul of Tarsus is not all that different from the fire-breathing zealots that we see today who are burning down cities and storming governmental buildings. That's Saul of Tarsus. Christian author Philip Yancey is even more candid in his comments on the Apostle Paul, he writes this, I get mail from Amnesty International, and as I look at their photos of men and women who have been beaten and cattle prodded and jabbed and spit on and electrocuted, I ask myself, what kind of human being could do that to another human being? And then I read the book of Acts and meet the kind of person who could do such a thing. It's referring there to the Apostle Paul and so it's easy for us to forget sometimes when we have our Bibles open and we're reading the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians or the book of Philippians that the person who authored those books was once like this. The person who authored, authored those books was Saul of Tarsus. It's easy for us to forget because we know that the person who eventually entered into Damascus was a much different man than the one who set out on that journey because of transformation. Took place. But it was a transformation that took place not because legislation banned the persecution of Christians in Damascus. It wasn't because protesters actually cried out for equal protection under the law for the Christians in Damascus. The transformation happened because Saul of Tarsus had a personal encounter with divine grace and truth. And so the second thing we need to look at is Paul and his confrontation with Jesus. We see this in verses three through nine. Paul in his confrontation with Jesus. He's on his way to arrest those that he regards as the enemies of God. But he is actually the one arrested as an enemy of God. As he approaches the city of Damascus, suddenly there's this light from heaven that interrupts the journey. And Saul hears this voice in verse four asking, Saul, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And after being knocked to the ground, Paul asks in response in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So here's Saul of Tarsus, zealously believing that he is acting in service to the one true living God by hunting down Christians all over the world to imprison them. And to his shock and to his terror, he learns that he is actually persecuting Israel's Messiah the redeemer of his own people, and the fulfillment of all God's covenant promises. But Jesus has ascended into glory, right? Luke tells us actually at the beginning of Acts, in chapter one, that Jesus has ascended. So how is it that Saul of Tarsus is persecuting Jesus? His followers, to be sure, he's persecuting them, but is he persecuting Jesus? Well, it's important for us to recognize how closely connected and identified Jesus is with his people throughout the pages of the New Testament, including by the teachings of the Apostle Paul, who refers to the church as the very body of Christ. And Paul repeatedly stresses in his writings the union that the believer has with Christ Jesus, a union that is so close that Paul claims that he himself has been crucified with Christ in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And he reminds the believers that they have died with Christ, been buried with Christ, and been risen with Christ in Romans chapter 6. Even being ascended with Christ in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 and seated with him in the heavenly places. And the the believer will reign with Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12. So close is this union and so close is the identification between Jesus and his people that to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. Now, what that should help us remember is that the enemies of Christianity, those who attack the faith, are not first opposing and enemies of us, but of our king. They are first and foremost enemies of God, not first and foremost enemies of us. Moses was right when he told the grumbling Israelites in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 16, verse 8, your grumbling is not against us, but it's ultimately against the Lord. And remember that God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, when the people were asking for a king, he says, they've not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. It's important that we not lose sight of this, because when we lose sight that attacks against the faith and enemies of Christianity are ultimately enemies of God, it's easy for us to get defensive and hostile and malicious in response to those attacks because we're taking them personally first. And that becomes a problem when we get defensive and hostile and malicious. There was a documentary that aired um, in this past spring, spring of 2020, that was documenting the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan and their pursuit of their sixth NBA title in 1998. And at times in that documentary, Michael Jordan is sharing that certain things happened on the court. He recalled certain things that were said to him or about him, maybe some trash talking, and he admitted, I took that personally. He says that many times in the documentary, I took that personally. And then, of course, he responded by taking out revenge and seeking vengeance against his opponents on the court and defeating them and attempting to humiliate them. And we can watch a a documentary like that and actually have some kind of admiration for somebody who would respond to being slighted that way who would end up rising up and defeating his opponents but that is not the way that we should respond as christians when the christian faith is attacked we shouldn't respond that way face to face we shouldn't respond that way on social media but it's not because our faith is not a deeply personal thing it is and it's not because we don't feel the sting when the name of our Heavenly Father or when our Savior is blasphemed by enemies, we do. But we have to remember that that hatred and those attacks are not first hatred and attacks upon us. And that allows us to remain calm and patient in responding to those attacks and those enemies of Christianity because it's ultimately our God who is being hated, even when the perpetrators of that hatred are conscious or not conscious that that's who it's ultimately directed at. So it's important that we not lose sight of things like that and speaking of losing sight that's exactly what happens to Saul of Tarsus He's struck with blindness now the cause of this blindness might have been the brightness of the light that breaks through from heaven we're not exactly told but the cause of it might have been the light but it, the blindness is actually an expression of covenant curse It's an expression of covenant curse upon unbelieving Israel, and that unbelief of Israel is coming to culmination here in the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, and this rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, you can see, is being embodied in Saul of Tarsus, not only rejecting Jesus as Messiah, but persecuting people who follow him. The announcement of this curse actually goes all the way back to Deuteronomy, where Moses tells the people that if they act in unbelief and disobedience to the covenant here's what will happen the lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind and you shall grope at midday this covenant curse is coming to literal fulfillment right here in acts chapter nine when paul is struck with blindness and his physical blindness is to serve as a reflection of his spiritual blindness to see the truth here is saul of tarsus A person who's burning with zeal, but blinded by his hatred, his arrogance, and his unbelief. That's actually worth repeating. Saul is a man who's burning with zeal, but blinded by his hatred, arrogance, and unbelief. And We have to admit that today, Saul of Tarsus would have many cohorts who are burning with zeal, but blinded by hatred, arrogance, and unbelief. But he still enters the city blind. He has to be led into the city by the hand because of his blindness. And so he's not a threat to anyone by the time he gets there, including the Christians who are worshiping Jesus in Damascus. But the confrontation with Jesus is not primarily about protecting the Christians who are in Damascus. It's not even ultimately about cursing Saul of Tarsus. It's about enlisting him with amazing grace. and So that's the third thing that we need to see. Paul and his calling to ministry in verses 10 through 19. Again, Jesus doesn't confront Paul ultimately to curse him with judgment, but to bless him with grace, to rescue him from his spiritual darkness, to heal him from that blindness, and to bring him into the kingdom of light and then commission him into service in the kingdom as he identifies him or describes him in verse 15 as a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. As we read the book of Acts, we actually see Paul engaged in each and every one of these activities. We should also know that it's interesting and not coincidental, not a mistake, that Luke, the author of Acts, sandwiches this account of the conversion of Paul, who was an apostle to the Gentiles, in between two accounts of Gentile conversions. The conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 And the conversion of Cornelius, the Roman centurion in Acts chapter 10. Right in the middle of those Gentile conversions is the conversion of Paul the Jew who becomes a missionary, apostle to the Gentiles. But as he's commissioned to this ministry work, it's important to see that Paul is not just the same person as he was before but just moving now in an opposite direction. Transformation is more than that. He's not just moving in the opposite direction now, as if at one time he was breathing fire and hatred against everyone who belonged to the way, but now he's breathing fire and hatred against anyone who doesn't belong to the way. His heart is transformed, and so his beliefs have changed, his mission has changed, but his methods have changed as well no longer relying on the methods of violence and persecution and legislation to bring about change, but instead relying on the very divine grace and truth that transformed his heart to transform the hearts of others. And as he adopts this mission, and as he adopts these new methods, he will encounter great suffering. In this mission and because of these methods, he will suffer greatly for the name of Jesus because this is what Jesus says in verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And what's true for Paul is true for us as well. We may not suffer as much as the Apostle Paul who suffered a great deal for the name of Jesus, but to be a faithful instrument of divine grace and truth and to proclaim that message and to live out that message Suffering is going to be inescapable. And that ought to be becoming increasingly clear if we're looking at the world with our eyes open. It's unavoidable to encounter this kind of suffering. And so we all need to ask ourselves personally, are you willing to suffer? Are you prepared to suffer for the name of Christ? Are you willing to embark on the mission of his kingdom And are you willing to adopt methods that open you up to persecution and suffering? Are you only willing to adopt the methods that allow you to escape suffering and persecution yourself and inflict suffering on others? We shouldn't answer that question too quickly. Are we really willing to adopt methods that will open us up to persecution? Rather than to adopt instruments and methods that allow us to inflict suffering instead of experiencing it. But we should also know that when we talk about methods, the methods that are aiming at heart transformation are not principally political methods. Politics are not our savior. Whether those politics are coming from the right or whether those politics are coming from the left, politics are not our savior. But that is not to say that civil policies, then, don't matter. That's not to say that civil policies and legislation is meaningless. We actually should take social action to bring about important and necessary changes in our culture. We ought to pursue just laws. We ought to protest unjust ones. We ought to be able to identify discrimination and inequalities that are there institutionally and seek to root those out. And we ought to seek to guard the lives of our most weak and vulnerable people. And we do this in an effort to bring God's kingdom to greater and greater expression in our society and culture. And we ought to do this as a demonstration of our love for our neighbors, whether those neighbors are believers or not. We ought to be engaged in that. Speaking about the importance of the law, Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way. He said, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can stop him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important. King is right. Legislation is not pointless. But King is also right in being aware that legislation is limited. It's limited. Legislation cannot transform a heart. It cannot remove hatred from a human heart and replace it with sacrificial love. Legislation can't do that. No election is going to be able to do that. Education can't do that. Throwing a lot of money at problems isn't going to do that. Placing people in sensitivity training is not going to do that. And certainly what's not gonna do that is bullying, insulting, and publicly shaming people on social media platforms. That's not gonna transform hearts. Legislation can do some things, right? Women can vote now because of social action that was taken in the past that's a good thing but guess what sexism and abuse still happen the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s righted wrongs that needed to be righted praise god that that happened but guess what racism and discrimination are still here and if abortion ever becomes illegal guess what people will still get abortions because legislation can't change hearts. But what legislation can't do, the grace and truth of the risen Christ can do. It can transform a heart. It can take a sinful heart full of hatred and transform it to produce the fruits of love and righteousness and justice and truth and compassion. If you want exhibit A, that that can happen, Saul of Tarsus but we should, actually shouldn't have to look to Saul of Tarsus for the proof of the power of transforming grace and truth that comes in the gospel that should come with us we ought to be the people who display that transformation through love and righteousness and truth and justice and compassion if those things don't look any different for us and they look for anybody else in the world that's a problem that's a problem can't just say we have transformed hearts it comes to expression in the way that we live in the way that we interact all of this is what I think led C.S. Lewis to conclude this he who converts his neighbor to Christianity has performed the most practical Christian political act of all not the only Christian political act but the most practical one because it's not dealing merely with legislation because through the grace and truth of Christ Jesus and the gospel, hearts can be transformed and that's something that legislation can never do. But the way that Jesus typically transforms hearts is not by confronting them with blinding light on the road. Instead, what he normally does is he commissions people like the Apostle Paul and me and you and Ananias here to be instruments of proclaiming and living out his truth and his grace. And we do see Ananias doing that here. He's sent to a known persecutor of the church, and so he's required to believe that people can really be changed and transformed by the power of the risen Christ. He has to really believe that to go to this known persecutor. The reason I mention that is because that notion is being increasingly dismissed today. Because we live in this environment where people are willing to dig up decades old dirt on people in order to smear and discredit them. Something they said 30 years ago, something they did 30, something they said or did 30 years ago is brought up again as if people can't never really change, but people can change. By the power of divine grace and truth, because Paul changes here, Ananias goes to him with courageous obedience. Let's not miss that. He has to exercise courage to go to Paul, lay his hands upon him, but when he does, Paul's changed. Scales fall from his eyes. He's healed of his blindness. He receives the Holy Spirit. He's baptized, and he gives his heart to Jesus and his life to ministry for the sake of the kingdom. Change is real in the gospel. But let's not skip over Ananias quite so fast and just think about the transformation of Paul because Ananias is easy to dismiss. He appears on the pages of Scripture really quickly, and then he leaves and he's never mentioned again but let's not dismiss him so quickly because we have to remember that in god's purposes there is no ministry of the apostle paul without the ministry of ananias and so when you think about if, if any of us here are gentiles to whom the gospel has come which is probably all of us certainly the vast majority of us Or for those of us that have been blessed and nourished and strengthened and discipled in the gospel by reading any one of the 13 letters that the Apostle Paul has written by inspiration of the Spirit that we find in our Bibles, if any of us have received encouragement from that, then we owe a debt of gratitude to Ananias. Ananias teaches us not to underestimate the value or the role of our ministry, no matter how small it might appear. I mean, what's the big deal? All Ananias has to do is go and lay his hands on Paul. God does everything else. That's the way most ministry works. But keep in mind, that small act of courageous obedience by Ananias changes the world. So let's not underestimate our role or the value that our ministries have, small acts of faithfulness. But let's not overestimate them either. Because as Paul would later remind the Corinthians, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but God who gives the growth. It's the Lord and the Lord alone, not me, not you, not Ananias, that transforms hearts and lives by the grace and truth of the gospel of Christ Jesus. But for Paul, he never wavers from this mission or his message of grace and truth. He never wavers from that at any point in his ministry, probably partly because he could never really forget who he'd been a persecutor of the church, trying to destroy the people of Christ. And it's important for us not to lose sight of our own need for grace and truth because the truth is that all of us at one time were enemies of God and had to be rescued. We are who we are because of God's grace. And so we need to be able to behold Saul and confess, there but by the grace of God go I. We need to be able to see our own reflections in Saul of Tarsus and that will ground us in grace and keep us from responding to those who disagree with us or oppose us or insult us or threaten us with hostility and with self-righteousness. Instead, we can respond with grace. And we can love even our enemies because God has loved his enemies. Paul's an example of that. Christian, you're an example of that and I'm an example of that. God has loved his enemies, and so we are empowered to love our enemies because when we were still enemies, Christ died for us. So there's power in transforming grace. These are dark and challenging times that we live in. But they're not hopeless times. There is hope, but let's not misplace our hope. Our ultimate hope is in the risen Christ because his light is stronger than darkness and because his grace and truth transforms hearts and, lives. and so, as those whose hearts and lives have been transformed by that grace and truth, let's be faithful instruments in word and in deed to point others to the one in whom there is hope for a transformed heart. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have sought us out in grace. Enemies of your truth and your gospel, enemies of you and yet you have sought us out not to judge us to condemn us but to rescue us to give us life to give us hope and to enlist us into the service of your kingdom so father help us to do that with gratitude and humility help us to see our own reflection in Saul of Tarsus so that we recall our dependence upon grace and that we might be faithful instruments in sharing that grace and truth in a world that needs that grace and truth for transformation. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.